of moisture out the air. I know, yeah. What states is a humidifier popcorn? Because I feel like that'd be taboo to use in Minnesota. Uh, uh the desert, <laughs> Arizona. If mm. you don't have one, you're cooked. You're, really? You just turn into a piece of beef jerky, yeah. Uh, I eat, there's too much humidity, I don't like it. Actually, mm. it, it's been an amazing week here, I'll say that. Today is about the nicest day I've ever felt. It was uh, uh, last week was the hundreds, right? Or yes. high nineties yeah. is quite uncomfortable. That was gross, especially probably for you who had to work in it. Yeah, I, uh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of tired of that, to be honest yeah. with you. I just want to, want to be in an office. I want to, oh. I want to be in a regulated office and all of that. Once my unemployment runs out, I <laughs> think I'm gonna be looking. I'm gonna be looking yeah. in the office field. Our good friend Sharkbait Online has offered me. Oh, I know exactly where that is. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I don't. I can't speak for her, but I know because uh, Nick and her are friends. Uh huh. And uh, he's done quite well for himself, like advancing in the company. Maybe so. Maybe that's worth a look into. It seems like a good company to like climb. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Get promotions, get bumped up. I think I could probably good. use this thing in, on my resume too. A podcast. The podcast. Absolutely. I mean, I would. I, I maybe I wouldn't like my prospective employers to listen to what I'm saying, but at the same time, we've garnered ourselves a little audience. We've uh, proved that we can be consistent. I think all that looks good on a on a it, resume. Absolutely. You know what? We've. Uh, I mean, we tend to talk a little bad about our ex employer, but uh, or yeah, but your ex. Walzer sucks. It's true. They're a shithole. <laughs> And it has been for the entire decade I worked there. I never made any illusion that that was a nice place to be. But, but like, let's say Phil, for example, he really likes his job. Right. He doesn't say anything bad about his right. job. Jordan likes his job, doesn't say Only anything says bad about good it. things about See? it in the masonry updates. Yeah, and we won't have any for a while, I no. don't think. I, he's on maternity, paternity. I know. I'm, I'm really sad because I had created this whole scenario. I wanted all of us to enjoy maybe... Hopefully he'll listen to this he later will. on he and, will. and be able to enjoy it. But, Adam, go, go ahead and push play on there for you. I'm going to go ahead and hit play. <laughs> it's a dilation. Dilation. <laughs> <laughs> Although they may look cute and cuddly, foxes can actually turn out to be sneaky, crafty little predators that mercilessly prey on your farm animals and even could cause damage to your property. Do you hear me? Get out of there. Oh my God! Christ, get him out of there! Help <laughs> me get out of there. We've seen uh, an explosion in the fox population over the last yes. 30 years. Yes, we have. Um, <laughs> hey, man, get out of there. This is incredibly important. People ask all the time what kinds of things do you need to do to have a fox. I think it's dilation. <laughs> so, Avia Jordan, <laughs> yes. that just put the headphones up to the stomach at this point. So that way, that way we know... <laughs> That the baby can hear it, and he knows he's got to get the hell out of there. I that came to me because we. I think last week where he was giving us a dilation update. Yes, he was. And I was like, "Well, we need the dilation countdown." Mm -hmm. And I watched more 
pregnancy vagina videos that I ever cared to in my life to get all of that. Is that true? Yes. I learned the the fingers to dilation ratio. What is it? Okay, so I I as far as I can tell, okay, a zero is like non pregnant women, right? right. And, Standard vaginal. Right. This is for the cervix, right? And as it widens, uh, I think f- up to three or four fingers is where the baby's ready to come out. Okay. So, like, one finger, it's starting two fingers, obviously. It's like a progression of how right. wide it's getting. And I think once it gets to three or four, I can't remember which one, it's like, you need to go see the doctor now because that still he's doesn't ready seem, to come out. That still doesn't seem like enough space for a baby to come out of. Well... <laughs> Probably not, but uh, they get out of there one way or the other. And I got big honking fingers. (laughs) Yeah. But I've seen babies' heads, and they're bigger. (laughs) Apparently, that's the rule. This is from nurses. Oh, gosh. He's like nurses talking about this, too. So, Well, ladies, I'm sorry that that happens. I mean, it's the miracle of life. Mm. It's the gift of birth, but uh, that's that's a rough part of the equation. Well, I mean, I think most of the time you're so hopped up you don't don't know sure i mean we're not on wagons anymore looking to (laughs) manifest destiny our way across the country 50 50 chance if you're gonna live or not yeah Uh, would it what's the the back shot thing called the back shot where they get you they shoot you in the back epidural epidural yes Mm. i bet the shot's really painful but then when you can't feel the lower half of your body sure when you feel like a paralyzed man (laughs) yeah or woman i should say yeah women give birth you watch Grey's Anatomy, right? No. No? No, Cody. Okay. Well, in one of the beginning episodes where they're like residents and they're they're playing with stuff, they decide to give each other one of those. Oh. And then one guy needs to get to surgery and he can't walk. No. So he's like trying to drag himself there. Really? Yeah. With his arms through yeah. the hospital, he's yeah. dragging himself? Because he, he can't feel his legs. And he's still a resident. I'm sure he got an ass chewing out by the doctor on staff that day. Hey, maybe medical students, they're just allowed to go a little wacky sometimes. Well, I'll tell you what. If you are a medical student, steal as much saline as you can. So that way, when you're hungover, you can give yourself an IV and get yourself right back to right back to business. You think that? You think that's like an instant cure? It is an instant cure. Is it? In Las Vegas, they have a van that you can get in. They'll drive you around, hook you up to an IV, and you're you're good to go so in you, ten minutes. Are you saying no headaches? No nothing, headaches, no tum tum aches. No, none of that like weird body feeling. You're nothing. perfect. You're hmm. ready to start drinking again. Apparently, uh, uh, Las Vegas is open up again, right? Yep. Is yeah. it? Everybody's ready to gamble. I don't think I would do it. <laughs> I, I still won't go to a restaurant. I'm still like skeeved I, out about that. I, yeah, I'm kind of on the edge with it as well. I. Most of the time I've seen, like, the outdoor restaurants, everybody's sitting pretty far from each mm-hmm. other. Uh, I Bradley, I think, went right back to the gym. They're open now. Yes, I heard so, about that. I, yeah, I I don't know. I, I kind of want to because I, I haven't too. been there in forever. Oh, my but... gosh. I've gone to seed since this whole thing happened. <laughs> I'm not even working. I've gone to seed. Uh, well, it's – so many people don't clean their machines, so it's like – That's disgusting. Mm-hmm. I know. And you know. I've always thought that was disgusting even before we were <laughs> yeah. in a global pandemic. Yeah. Well, you don't... Okay, so uh, do you, I assume you don't have Snap Fitness anymore, right? No. Well, this one closed over here, so I'm like, I can go to Anytime or Planet Fitness. 
I don't know how Planet Fitness is. So the new management that came in, okay, they couldn't keep it going, huh? At the don't Snap you Fitness. remember when that one closed down? They just like the the guy refused to pay the rent on the building, not because of COVID or anything. He just is way before that. He just decided I'm not paying it anymore until they renegotiate. And he just lapsed on all <laughs> the payments and then they shut the door on him. He said later. Yeah. Well, so. hey, get out of it one way or another. <laughs> I can't imagine that location was very lucrative. Nah, it was. It, it wasn't the greatest. Well, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bumblebutt Podcast, the only podcast on the internet that uploads weekly. Who knows what it'll be about? Certainly not me. My name is Adam. Sitting across from me, as ever, is Cody. Hello, Cody. Hello, Adam. How was your week? Uh, it's been a week. It's a trying week. Very busy. Long days, but uh, I'm here. I Long survived. days, short nights. Yeah, basically. Uh, Long days, nightmare-filled nights. Those Hot eight day, hours uh, at work feel like 50. Yeah, and basically. The, and the eight hours you're home feel like two. Mm. It, uh, essentially, yeah. I, it, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people feel like you get home. You want to do something to relax for a little bit, and then you make dinner, and maybe watch a movie or a show, and then it's time for bed, and then it's like you wake up and do the same thing again. And then the weekend <laughs> comes, and you're so happy. Mm. Friday night's amazing, Saturday night's amazing, and then Sunday you realize, yeah, here we go again. Back okay, to the what, meat grinder. What is it like not to face that dread every week right now? It's weird, <laughs> because sometimes I don't know what day it is. Mm-hmm. I'm like, is okay. it Wednesday or Sunday? I'm not quite sure. Maybe you should get a little, like, clicky calendar. Yeah, or a wristwatch. Over there. Yes, exactly. Mm. That could help you. Mm. I guess you have a cell phone, but... Uh... Yeah, and I'm, uh, yeah, and it shows it right on the lock screen, so I'm did, just an idiot. Did you see uh, the RE8 preview? Nope. No? Mm-mm. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Well, maybe we should save that for BTV. Let's do that. Uh, all right. Let's get right into this, son of a bitch. Little change of plans, guys. Mm. Marcel Pechot is going four parts. Mm. I wrote up this episode, <laughs> typed up the script, and I realized there is no way we could get this done in a, and then edited it out in a manageable or stress-free amount of time. So I broke it up. Into two more episodes, we're going to go Marcel, Marcel Pecho Part 3 and Marcel Pecho Part 4. Sometimes you gotta. Just too much stuff. And it's all too interesting. It's all right. too fun. Right. I'm I'm honestly, like, surprised, especially when they they are kind of tracking this guy. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, the country had a lot bigger problems than this guy. Yes. And uh, there's so much information about it. I feel like there's a lot of stuff that gets lost. During World War II, that occurred. Certainly. Certainly. Well, every spare moment of Commissioner Masu's life since the discovery at 21 Rue Le Sueur consisted of being in the lab and helping comb through evidence. One piece, a black designer dress, stuck out to Masu like a sore thumb. Through a freak stroke of luck, one of the secretaries in the office that day recognized the dress as a Sylvie Rosa, and she made only custom dresses. Really? I wonder if they're still around. Sylvie Rosa, real name Sylvie Givauden, remembered the dress. She had made it three and a half years ago and sold it to a woman named Paulette who worked at a nearby brothel and who was, by Sylvie's account, young and beautiful. Uh Uh-oh, I I have a feeling this isn't good. Paulette's real name was Josephine Grippe, but her pimp thought that sounded too old-fashioned to give business. When she was finally able to break away from her pimp, she transitioned into the brothel life instead of streetwalking. 
On Province Street, tucked into a discreet building with closed white shutters, was the 122. This was a seven-story mega-brothel in which every room had a different theme. For example, one was called the Orient and Ex- Express. <laughs> How dated there? There was an ocean liner room, an Arctic igloo room, a farm life room, complete with a uh, white picket fence. Hell yeah. Two rooms covered ceiling <laughs> to floor in mirrors, and the infamous torture chamber filled with whips, chains, cuffs, and leather thongs. Okay, so it, it's amazing how things have changed, because the the torture chamber here would be... Light bondage. Uh, yeah, light bondage for yeah. a lot of people. Not like it. Every, every person who's watched, uh, what's that movie? Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. Right here. Mm-hmm. The Orient Express, though. Right? Yeah. I, I don't know. What do you, smoke opium in there? What do you do? Maybe it's a big train car themed room. <laughs> okay. Where you're just like, you're doing a murder mystery and you're also having sex. The, it was funny because this Arctic igloo room, I've, uh, are you a fan of Naked and Afraid? Not really, no. Okay, so, well, anyway, I was watching it on, like, Thursday or something, and uh, they ship them to Alaska to survive, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I hate being cold so much, and I'm just like, I don't know what you guys are doing. (laughs) Now, I'm assuming this isn't an Arctic room where you have sex in it. No, there's fake snow (laughs) and fake snowmen and a little sign that says, like, North Pole. It probably looks like you're going through goddamn uh, Halloween Horror Nights or something. Just little shit flying everywhere. Probably little things of uh, asbestos. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say, you know they're throwing asbestos on you while you're going through there. Oh, yeah. This was World War II. (laughs) How had Petio come to know her? Was she one of his clients? Since Petio's arrival in Paris 11 years before, he had drawn many of his clients from that exact field of work. He had also attracted women from far less high-end brothels. There were no shortage of witnesses ready to testify about Petio's customer base, which was overwhelmingly female, and all of them were addicted to either morphine, heroin, or cocaine. So he wasn't necessarily a customer to the brothels no he was just helping the helping the clients yeah like doc from uh deadwood yeah okay (laughs) it's he's honestly the first person that came to my mind too what do they always say tend to my whore doc uh, old swear (laughs) if these women couldn't pay his rates petio was not against cutting a deal or trading services the doctor credits many of these women with teaching him invaluable lessons. This was Jordan. Um, yeah, well, this was Jordan, but since he is on uh, dilation watch. Mm, dilation Cody, countdown. The, uh, today's episode, Cody will be reprising the role of Dr. Marcel okay. Pechot. It is through them that you learn to be dominant. So great harems make great conquerors. Oh, what a creep. Mm, he's very poetic. But again, he's French, so what are you going to do? That's true. But, geez, gross. He's like, <laughs> I, I need whores so I can dominate them. Well, okay, what are these, what, if he doesn't like the sexual aspect of... Well, he does. Oh, he does. So that's what he's trading services. If they can't pay, yeah. Gotcha, okay. One former prostitute slash patient of Pecho's had this to say. We were all a little afraid of him. He always asked for tricks that we didn't like. Or sometimes that we didn't know. He would explain it to us with a funny laugh. He was often way too rough and liked to bite and pinch nipples with all his might. 
God, again, like fucking Joe Mauer. You're exactly <laughs> like allegedly Joe Mauer. I found this out because uh, we were listening to it when it came out last week, and I made the Joe Mauer comment, and then I had to explain that Joe Mauer is like a Minnesota hero. Yes. For the Minnesota Twins, who's Mr. Do-Nothing-Wrong. He just... Uh, it's a good baseball player. Don't get me That's wrong. He when he was having his bilateral leg weakness that kept him out for months at a time, mm. I said, what the fuck are the Twins doing sitting on this gigantic contract if this fucker won't even play ball? <laughs> but in his last two seasons with the Twins, he was good. He really he turned good. it around. He, he started hitting again like you know, he did when he was a kid. You know what's funny? So uh, I was listening to the PFF uh, podcast, and they were doing – Making a team of athletes from different sports that would play football, right? Mm. Quarterback. One of them picked Joe Maurer. Wow. I was surprised. Kid's built like a quarterback. Like, apparently, he used to be. Yeah. Like, before, obviously, he got paid a lot more in baseball than oh, yeah. he did in football. Oh. So. <laughs> Peccio had a reputation around Paris's naughty 16th district for being the go-to guy to treat your gonorrhea or syphilis. Could this be how the physician met Paulette? The brothel where she earned her living was located less than one block away from 21 Rue Le Sewell. Do you think he's treating syphilis and gonorrhea like they did in Boardwalk Empire, where they're, like, giving you a shot right in your penis? Oh, oh I don't know, but I hope not. <sighs> I remember that from that show. That's like... awful. <laughs> hey, don't sleep around with loose women, all right? <laughs> I hope that's a quote from Boardwalk Empire. I don't know if it is. Sleep with whoever you want. It's <laughs> yes, awesome. Yes. Maurice Peccio, Marcel's younger ride-or-die brother, mm. was still no help to Commissioner Massu. He was asked to give his whereabouts exactly during the days of March 11th through 13th, 1944. Maurice said a lot of vague things about fixing the heating at one of his properties, getting drunk with his friend Pierre, and driving out to visit a piece of property Marcel's wife had inherited the year previous. Look, Pierre's are on, you're getting shit-faced. It's that, gonna happen. That's just how it is. They, <laughs> they call him Lucky Pierre for a reason, yeah. all right? Masu, the coy old bastard that he is, was leading to something. Okay. Contrary to what you claim, you have sent certain products or materials to the property at Rue Le Sur. Would you like to explain? Asked Masu. Maurice responded, If I have sent any materials, it is for you <laughs> to prove it. <laughs> You have sent some, including lime. That's for you to prove. Mm, was this like a margarita lime, or this is like different lime, I'm assuming? This is the lime that okay. he used to, di to dispose the bodies, for sure. <laughs> that would be awesome if he sent a billion got, limes, though. If you got a margarita with, like, lime around the rim of it. <laughs> oh, oh, gross. Why do my lips burn? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, this wasn't an airtight slam dunk, but Massu was well on his way to proving just that. Jean Eustache, <laughs> a truck driver who had transported things for Maurice in the past, contacted the police with a major revelation. In mid-February mid 1944, Eustache and fellow truck driver Robert Massiner had picked up Maurice in truck number 290ZU4 and driven him to a quarry to collect 400 kilograms of quicklime. That seems like quite a bit. It seems like a lot more than Maurice says, which was none. Are we ever going to get move over to that metric system? To the kilograms and the meters? Yeah, because kilograms, I to me, it sounds like a lot, but I'm pretty sure in pounds that's like half of that, right? 
No, double that. Double that? I'm not sure if what it, it's like 1.8 kilograms, okay. something like that. Okay. Have also, uh, what was this guy's name? Eustache. Yeah, Eustache. I just feel like that, just like a dirty Eustache, just Ugh. sounds off, absolutely nasty. Uh, <laughs> Let me get a dirty Eustache. <laughs> if you just, if you, if you have a Tinder account out there, please to a man or woman. Just message them, say, hey, are you down with the dirty use statch? And if they're not, block them. <laughs> block them block immediately. immediately. <laughs> According to use stash, Maurice claimed that the quicklime was to be used for whitewashing the property, and the three mo- men unloaded all the sacks just inside the carriage entrance to a private mansion somewhere in Paris's fancy-schmancy 16th district, Ooh. but he wasn't exactly sure of the address. Okay, do you know the exact purpose of lime or quick lime like is it a cleaning agent it is okay it is also and it's also real good at decomposing fish guts that's where i know it from because the cleaning shack that we used to use for gutting all the it. fish yeah okay. you, just, you after you threw all your uh skins and bones and all that stuff in there then you would uh, run some water and put two scoops of lime in there to control the smell and to keep the i was gonna say that is the worst smell oh, yeah. on the play- face of the earth. My lord. Because my, my <laughs> rest in peace, grand, my grandma, but she would, grandpa would come in with his dirty fish, say, hey, babe, can you cut these up? Oh, fillet them up, baby. She'd, you know, cut their heads off. They'd still be moving, and she'd be yelling, cursing at him the whole time. Cursing at your yeah. grandpa? You son of a bitch. Wow. Making me clean these fish. Wow. And just like, uh... Worst smell ever. Oh, yeah. Worst it's, smell ever. It's brutal. Ugh. It's a brutally gross smell. <laughs> Masu, ever the expert poker player, didn't bring up this particular lime discovery just yet. Instead, he pressed on, preparing for Maurice to hang himself with his words. Have you seen any lime on the property at Rue Le Sur? No. I have never seen any there. You liar. <laughs> Massey asked about his whereabouts on February 19th, the day that the delivery happened. Mm. Once again, Maurice claimed to have spent the day at home. When asked about Jean Eustache, <laughs> Maurice said yes, he knew him, but not well. I hired him to move something in Paris, probably on the 19th. They had a bunch of deliveries to do, so they dropped me off on Rue Carmartin to have lunch with my brother Marcel. Uh-oh, he just walked into his trap. Maurice was going to meet back up with the truck drivers the next day at 2 p.m., where he would direct the truck to the warehouse to haul away electrical goods that he had bought. But Eustache never showed. And later, Maurice would learn that the truck never showed because it was involved in an accident. <laughs> Can't be driving loaded, man. <laughs> Can't be doing that. When asked about Marcel's whereabouts, of course, Maurice said... He could only guess, envisioning three possibilities, he was hiding out with the resistance, he had taken flight abroad, or he had killed himself. Okay, I I mean, technically, I guess those are probable, right? I mean, the uh, based on the shit that he's going through right now, <laughs> I think those would be the three options. I, would, I mean, definitely the second two, either got the hell out of there, or he, well, this guy sounds like a, a narcissist, so I don't think he offed himself. It, but he did just cut and run from his wife and kids, you know, or kids. Yeah, but that's a selfish move. Yeah, that's the most narcissistic. Yeah, so I, I'm saying I, he's pretty narcissistic, so I don't think he would kill himself. Mm. Mm. 
You'd have to be, yeah, for a narcissist to kill himself, he'd have to be pretty backed into mm. a corner, probably. But then again, Israel Keys did, so. Mm. You know what I'm saying? That ultimate edge lord. But, like Ted Bundy, he fought his way. He tried to fight. He, he was convinced that he was going to get away with everything. <laughs> but he didn't. And they put an electric cap on his head. <laughs> Profiling is the practice of drawing up a psychological portrait of a criminal based on behavioral clues and evidence. This wasn't used in this murder investigation or any other during the Nazi occupation of France. Although it was occasionally used throughout the world, it wouldn't have its proper breakthrough until the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit opened in 1972 mm. in Quantico, Virginia. Hell yeah. As we all know by now, Special Agent John Douglas described what he referred to as the homicidal triad of behaviors that suggest future violent crime. They are cruelty to animals, late-age bedwetting, and arson. As we know from him trying to dunk his kitty's paws in boiling water and subsequently killing it, the first one's a check. Okay. As we know from his aunt, he peed the bed all the way up until he was 13. So that's another check. He nailed it. And arson, although not provable, and he never directly admitted to it, three dairies around the town he grew up in had burnt down mysteriously. Check. Okay. You know, there. to be fair... A lot of fires in this time. That's true. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know why you'd start a dairy on fire. That's Or three dairies. Uh, dairies are good. You want dairies. I want milk. Yes, exactly. I mean, yeah. But, uh, so you're saying basically this guy, if we're going off John Douglas's profile, he's definitely a high probability of having problems. No question about okay. it. If we're going off John Douglas's profiling. And it, to be honest, if they would have back then, I have a feeling they would have seen a lot more red flags mm, with Marcel mm. a lot sooner. Oh, I'm sure. Well, it's funny you were reading that about the profiling, and uh, I think I've talked about it before. The Italian film, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, right? Okay. Uh, it, it It's basically a giallo where there's a madman killing people, okay? Those all right. are, that's kind of the base theme of all of these movies. Now, they have this giant room filled with, like, servers, and it's how they, like, make a profile of the killer or whatever. So I don't know why it reminded me of that. But it's like they're entering, like, oh, he did this, he did this, right. he did this, and then it gives them a printout of what the suspect might be like. It's and like, this was probably, like, I don't know, 10, 20 years after this. So wow. I don't know. I th I feel like the movie was... That's not how they actually do it, but uh, but you, yeah. I you know at the fair how they have that giant computer that'll predict your future on a punch card? Right. That's Maybe what that that's reminds me of. It, <laughs> it was a great movie, by the way. But what's it called again? Uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Bird with the Crystal Plumage. I'm sure in Italian it sounds a lot less clunky than that. It, well, the the thing is, is like it. Those movies, for some reason, especially like the Argento ones, he names them stuff that have almost nothing to do with the movie. Oh. But, but yeah. It's I my always... strategy for Between the Bumbles <laughs> as well. <laughs> I always remember they had like just these weird machines with spinning discs on them. And it's right. like, oh, here we are. We're getting a profile. Generating the data here. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like that's probably what they're doing. They have like two... I don't know, pastry spinning on there trying to get the, what this guy looks like. What if they they have two spinning danishes on there, and then all of a sudden, like, a loaf of 
thin bread comes out of there with his face oh, on it. That would be great. <laughs> it's an oven end of profiling yeah. machine. It'd be amazing. March 16th, 1944. Masu called in Maurice for yet another interview. This time so detectives from the Brigade Criminal could search his property while he wasn't there. As the police report of the search summed it up, they found nothing suspicious. I mean, that makes sense. It, it seems like he's not necessarily... Maybe he doesn't know about the killings. He only, like, is knows about the... His, or hangs out with his brother. Right. Of, you know what I'm saying? And he's going to try and protect him, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Police also had a warrant for Maurice's other property on Rue de Pont. They found mainly tools, firewood, mm. and even more antique furniture. Then, in one of the bedrooms, they found a locked cupboard. After finding the key in a drawer... Detectives opened it to find a number of papers belonging to Dr. Marcel Pichot. A diploma, an insurance policy, acts of sale for a few properties, two address books, and the ID card of the late French actor Harry Bauer. An actor? Yep. Okay. A dead actor. (laughs) Okay. He had the ID card. All right. I don't know why he needs that. A closet in the room contained a fur coat, two mink wraps, and several other articles of women's clothing in size small. Well, okay, if you don't have that stuff in France or in 1944, aren't you considered to be lower class? But, but for women, <laughs> size small women? doesn't matter. You gotta oh, have you fur just co- have to have it. You have to have two dead mink wraps and a fur coat. Doesn't just on matter. the property? Yes. Okay. Right. So if man you wanna- or woman? If you want to be considered a upstanding citizen, you need to have these. Okay. All right. Well, that makes a little more <laughs> sense. When asked about these discoveries, Maurice said that he had no idea they were even there. He imagined they were probably left there a few months previous when Georgette and Marcel had stayed several nights with them in that room. All that was just a warm-up. In the two days since Maurice's last interview, detectives at Brigade Criminel managed to get a signed statement from truck driver John Eustache. Masu gave him one more chance to tell the truth, and Maurice lied straight into his eyeballs. Mm. The written statement was slammed on the table for Maurice to read. When he finished, he raised his cold stare back up to Masu and said, All right, Marcel requested 400 kg of lime to kill the bugs in the attic of Rue Le Sueur and to whitewash the facade. Maurice explained that the reason he failed to answer honestly was because he feared the information he gave would give a sketchy portrait of his brother. He admitted that he made a mistake trying to cover up his involvement in the delivery, but he was no murderer and knew nothing about the bodies in his brother's townhouse. My brother didn't keep me informed of his business. All I knew for certain about Rulasur was Marcel wanted to establish a clinic for tumor and cancer research. Okay, so it could be probable that Maurice maybe thinks his brother's innocent still and he just is kind of helping him out yeah he, like he, he needs the lime and he's not trying to dime on his brother i'm trying to think if you, when your brothers ask you to pick up 400 kilograms of lime would i'm you just question not, it i'm just not interested in uh, in assisting the police put away one of my family members mm-hmm. i guess maybe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i don't know like We're, if I don't know. Do you know where were the French police hard asses at this time? You know? Well, they were under a lot of scrutiny <laughs> from the Nazis, which yeah. was kind of a problem. The the ultra police overlooking oh. them. So, yeah. Can you imagine trying to do your job basically on a tightrope where you're always about to fall into a Nazi death camp? It that doesn't, doesn't sound, sound fun. Gr- it doesn't sound great. Now, here's the thing I'm wondering. If Maurice... 
was to get convicted of aiding his brother Marcel, mm. would he face punishment from the French or from the Nazis? Depends. Yeah, I mean, the Nazis, if they want it. Okay. But Seems the... like the Nazis aren't really interested in, in any of this. They seem hands-off as <laughs> <Yeah>. hell. <laughs> Maurice continued to squawk on his brother, giving out more and more info piece by piece. Matthew, it is said, in Death in the City of Light, the main source for this episode, mm. and one of the best books uh, I've read in a it's long great. time. It's Chef's it's, Kiss? It, oh, uh, 100%. <clears throat> Matthew, it is said in that great book, is a bit of a born detective. He can unravel people almost without effort. For instance, Maurice admitted that he had been in the triangular torture room with the false door at Roulassur, although he doesn't remember the hooks on the walls. Okay, I feel like you'd remember being in a triangular torture room. Oh, he's just, he's <laughs> given it, like, he held out for so long, but now he's just given it all up. Mm. Maurice also let fly that he had learned of the crime not on March 13th, as he previously stated, but instead on March 11th, the day it all went down. He received a late-night anonymous... <laughs> he received a late-night anonymous phone call, and he would adamantly and repeatedly swear that it wasn't his brother that made the call. Okay. But did he literally hang out and be like, That's not my brother! That's not him! That's that not him, him goddammit! <laughs> Commissioner Massu, of course, already knew about the late-night phone call. It had been logged by operators, and it was pretty striking that this so-called anonymous tip-off call lasted eight minutes. Okay, that's pretty long. Masu took Maurice down the hallway, past the line of photographers, and up to the desk sergeant. Books is this man for complacency. I am convinced that the whereabouts of the doctor is known by his brother and also his wife, who from part two, we remember him, he was cracking her too. Oh, yes. He's got both of them. Masu had heard enough of mm. Maurice walking back and forth on what he did and didn't know, so well, he said, I book ima him. I imagine Mar Maurice has, like, the smuggest mustache ever. You think and so? And you just want to arrest him. Yeah, he has to. A big greasy like the, French mustache. Like the super ultra thin one right mm. there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the John Waters. Mm. <laughs> is he a bad guy? Wait, John Waters? Is that who I'm... He's the creepy guy, right? I, I feel like John Waters is the director. Maybe John Waters is the director, or is he the lead singer of CCR? No, that's John Fogarty. <laughs> I don't know. Whoever has, like, where you have to purposely shave half of your mustache. Yeah, I think it's John the, Waters, the there. creepy guy, the real mm, creepy fuck. Looks like Vincent Price's yes. mustache. Yes, kinda. yes. Wow. Spiders. <laughs> the Butcher of Paris, the Scalper of Etois, the Monster of Roulassur. The demonic ogre, Dr. Satan. Mm. These were all over the papers, both local and international. So you're telling me all these names existed and Jorn chose the name Druid. No shit. No shit. The demonic ogre? What? Love that. Oh. Awesome. And that he could have had that for free. <laughs> yeah. At 17, Rue Darcet was a bistro that used to be owned by one of Pecho's patients. The new owner, Maria Vick, called inspectors to report that she may have seen Dr. Pecho on the night of the discovery. She reported that a man came into the restaurant at about 9.15 to 9.30 and asked to use the phone. When she agreed, Ollie told her that he was calling someone in Yan. She went in to wash dishes to give the man some privacy, and at some point... 
She thought she heard him yell the words, Burns the papers! Maria Vick also gave them a huge hint that would have solved the case that very second if they would have only pursued it. Mm. She told them to question Old Man Radu, <laughs> a house painter in his mid-fifties who was a known drinking buddy of Pichot. Okay. French police would later have to defend this failure by saying they believe Rideau to be a first name and they couldn't be expected to locate someone with only their first name. I've... Rideau? I've never heard of that as a first name. Maybe it's more common in Fran French. <laughs> French? Welp. Dr. Marcel Pachot had indeed been hiding with Georges Rideau in his small apartment. Rideau, of course, had heard about the murder allegations, as they were on the front page of every newspaper in the country, but he believed Pachot when he said the people he killed were German occupiers. I, From what I'm gathering here, I think uh, Dr. Marcel is so charismatic mm -hmm. and so manipulative, he can kind of like... I can just envision Miss uh, George over there is just plastered. He's asking him about it. He can spin that web where he's like, I would never. I know. would never, man. Come on. You know me. You know I was only killing Nazis. You know <laughs> right. I'm resistance to the fucking right. bone, brother. You got to get these Nazis out of here. Mm. All these uh, sex workers. I would never touch them. Mm-mm. During the day, Pecho remained inside reading the papers, working on crosswords, and listening to daytime BBC radio programming. He sounds like your average day uh, white college student. This is me, unemployed <laughs> right now. <laughs> he ripped through detective novels and even created special dice for making probability calculations. He was pretty much rolling D20s, I think. Are, he made his own dice? Yeah, for, for wow. calculating calculating probabilities of different scenarios okay. in his life. Okay, I guess this is the first supercomputer right Fuck here. Fuck yeah. <laughs> he was also growing his beard and wearing only dark glasses to disguise his profile. Mm. If you remember from the last episode, we met the doctor of a thousand autopsies, Dr. Albert Paul. Do you okay. remember him? Slightly. Yes. Well, he burst into Matthew's office, hand extended and grinning. It's like two years ago, he says. Dr. Paul was referring to a period between May 1942 and January 1943, when a number of legs, arms, torsos, and other body parts had been fished out of the Seine River or dropped in packages around town. The first package was discovered on May 7, 1942, when a chest tied closed with a rope was taken out of the Seine. It contained a body of a male in the range of 45 to 50 without head, hands, or feet. The decapitation took place, as the police report detailed, at the level of the neck with a sharp cutting instrument just short of the shoulders. The hands had been cut off at the wrist at the radio-ulnar carpal joint <laughs> and the feet just below the shin at the tibio-tarsal joint. Who names this shit? That's what I want to know. Goddamn Latin people. It's too much, man. That's so, what, Latin's a damn dead language, and for good reason. So what you're explaining here is like French fly fishing, kind of. Yeah. It's pulling body parts coming out of there. Pulling treasure chests full of body parts out of the sea. Can you imagine you're playing like one of the Zelda games? You're doing the little mini game where you're going fishing, oh, and all of, sudden, all of a sudden there's just a torso or a leg attached to it. Ugh. And he just like I caught a monster. That would be like the the scary Ben drowned creepy pasta for Majora's oh, Mask. Yeah, Remember that one? Yeah, that was creepy. Mm -hmm. When I first heard about that, I was like, "Ooh, this is a really good like ghost story." And then I'm like, 
Ah, this is just a creepy pasta. That was the first creepy pasta that ever actually like got me. Mm. Like I was fooled by it. It was good. It was a good one. Mm-hmm. Other than the obvious dismemberment, there was no scarring, no fracturing, and no traces of violence. This body would never be ID. Almost like he did it very precisely. Like he had expert training mm. with a scalpel. Okay. More surgically cut body parts were found on July 2nd, 16th, August 6th, 10th, and on the 22nd, they found a chest on the outskirts of Paris containing two human hands without skin or fingertips, two feet without toenails, the skin of two legs, including the heel, and three scalps with different hair colors. There was also a chest cavity, a left ear with part of the skin of the face, the point of a nose without cartilage, a penis with two testicles and a lacerated scrotum, and an entire face mask without the point of nose, mouth, lips, and both ears. Four other assorted pieces of mutilated human body parts couldn't be identified. The skin or legs with, or just the leg skins? Like socks, yeah. Ooh, gee. So it kind of sounds like he's straight up just like cutting things off, looking at them, throwing them in the river almost. You know what I'm saying? Like he's a... Wrapping them up in a trunk in a fucking... In, can, a ch- in a treasure chest. I can see where you're getting the da- Dr. Satan compa- uh, cons- comparison here. It's, no kidding. Uh, it sounds like this literally sounds like Leatherface shit here. Yes. Or d- did you ever play any of the Batman games? Um. Yes. Which one are you speaking of? Maybe Arkham Knight, the, the last one that came out. That's the only one I didn't play. Damn. One of the villains in that is like an insane plastic surgeon that was making <laughs> zombies and like cutting people's faces off. And really? Shit. Yeah. Wasn't Hush, was it? I can't remember. It remember might Remember Hush had like the wrapped head? One with of the bandages and the wrapped face? Okay, this guy was wearing a pig fit. No, he would put he would turn all of his zombies into pig faces. Mm. No, I didn't play that one, is it? Man, Did you I recommend it? Yeah, oh yeah, that one's fun really? as hell. That okay. one's really fun. Arkham Knight, I think it's called. I, I think you're right, because I remember the big contention was one company made the first two, mm-hmm. and then a different company made that one. Uh, no, they made Arkham Origins. Origins, the different company did. Oh, And then okay. this one, Arkham Knight, is like back to basics. Maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. Okay, uh, they had Arkham Asylum, then Arkham... City. And then they had Arkham... Origins, and, and then Arkham Knight. Okay. No, I haven't played the last two, then. Well, you can skip Origins, but <laughs> Night is fucking awesome, and it scared the shit out of me. I don't want to say this spoiler, but, like, as soon as you get control of Batman and you're zipping around the city, something scares the shit out of you. Okay. All right. I might have to play it, then. You definitely should. You definitely should. This kept happening. All of them in bulging t- chests tied shut with ropes. In every instance, the decapitation and dismemberment had been done by someone obviously surgically trained... And what's more, the cleanliness of each cut in each trunk was strikingly similar. In fact, everything was done with such precision that Dr. Albert Paul feared that it was someone on his own staff. Damn. Okay, that Dr. Uh, Paul, you need to look into your uh, workers, (laughs) apparently. The linchpin that made Dr. Paul certain that Peccio was behind these mysterious packages came from the piles of dead body parts being lifted out of Rue Sewer. According to Dr. Paul... We forensic scientists are in the habit, in a dissection, of not putting our scalpel on the table when we stop in the middle of our work, but instead stick it in the thigh of the cadaver. Why? So you don't lose it. 
Okay, so they're like starting to cut, and it's like you hear the the break time bell, and you just jam it in there and yep. take off, just shove it right in the thigh, and walk away. Well, uh, who's gonna look at it? I Nobody. mean, uh, you remember the movie uh, Gone in sixty seconds? I remember that uh, documentary. Yes, <laughs> the soccer player guy. Sphinx. Uh-huh. Remember, he's like an autopsy guy, and he's got the dead body, and he's eating a sandwich, and he just Let's, throws it oh, on top of him. That's so gross to me. <laughs> and he picks up the phone. I mean, it's a dead body. I'm sure it's been washed, right? I just don't care. Mm. I just don't want to eat dead body sandwiches. Okay. But I, I'm assuming you can't get sick then. I'm, I'm sure somebody out there is like a mortician or something will tell us. Can you get... If you were to, if you had a dead body, you set your sandwich on there, then eat it. Can you get sick? Morticians, write in. Please. Let I'm us very, know. Like, maybe give us a pre-embalming and post-embalming. Right. Because we're curious if Sphinx would have gotten some weird disease. Now, I'm not certain here, okay? But okay. this is a forensic scientist doing autopsies. I'm not exactly sure if the same rules apply to people that are just draining the blood <laughs> and putting the makeup on and making them... I'm not saying that that's an easy job. That sounds fucking awful. It does. It, not awful. I'm sure if you love it, it's awesome. I mean, I, 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 I'm i sure it pays well, right? And I'm sure it has to be emotionally rewarding to be f- like the last stop on somebody's life. Like you're now making their body presentable to mm. be shown to their family. Mm. Maybe there's something peaceful and cathartic about that. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm sure at my funeral, if I have one or whatever, I'll probably probably be the best I'll ever look. I'm gonna be ashes, <laughs> so definitely, I'm gonna be so skinny. Maybe okay in my in my urn when I'm ashes, maybe just draw like a cute face on the outside of it. Yeah, like that'll be fine with me. Yeah, that's yeah. perfectly good. <laughs> Doctor Paul had found those same marks on the first human remains on May seventh, nineteen forty two. And he had found them again in the shreds of flesh being transferred over to him from the lime pit. So uh, so basically all of these have like a tiny little slit where he would have jammed it in there yep. to take a break. Okay. To go answer the phone or eat a sandwich or whatever he was doing. Interesting. Going back through his notes on these carved up cadaver cases, Masu examined the first known victim, Joachim Gushinow. Gushinow was a Polish-born Jew who became obviously terrified by the developments in occupied Paris. Makes sense. To make matters worse for him, he owned a thriving fur and leather shop, and in the Aryanization of the French economy in full swing, he was forced to sell his business to a non-Jew at an unbelievably low price. Okay, that's Nazi business right there. Luckily for him, however, the new non-Jewish owner, Guedo, was a good friend and gave him fair market value under the table. Now... Joaquim Gushinow had told Guido that his medical doctor, Marcel Petcho, claimed to know a way out of the country. It wouldn't be easy, Petcho warned, but it was definitely possible. For a small fee of 25,000 francs, an underground railroad would smuggle him over the mountains into Spain and onto a ship marked for Argentina. All travel documents would be provided. Bring no ID that ties you to your former life. Okay, all right, I mean... At the time, that seems like a good deal for that, right? Yeah, to be smuggled to Argentina away from the Nazis. The, uh, the, uh, I feel like it was on one of the recent, uh, what do you call it? Uh, last podcast and last left episode, they were talking about Franks in correlation to something to what they were talking about. And it sounds like the Franks aren't 
that valuable. They're not. They're not. So, like, 2,500 francs sounds like a lot. 25,000. 25,000, yes. Mm. And it's just, it's actually, like, not hardly any at all. Uh, money, uh, the francs were pretty uh, <laughs> devalued at the yeah. time. Gushinaw was supposed to remain completely silent about this secret organization. But in his excitement, he told his good friend Guido, which was incredibly fortunate for the investigation. Guido was hesitant to help his friend. The risks were incredibly severe, but help he did. Gushinaw was instructed to bring one or at most two suitcases of personal belongings. He had sewn two $500 bills in U.S. currency into the shoulders of his coat and concealed an unknown amount in a secret compartment in one of his suitcases. He also carried a fortune in gold, silver, diamonds, and other heirlooms, which totaled an estimated 700,000 francs in jewels alone. Jesus, so he's trying to escape the uh, country with all of that. Everything. Holy shit. He also brought several fur coats to start a new furrier shop in Buenos Aires. Makes sense. The Brazilians love, or the Argentinians Ooh, love that. They all take some I was fur. Gonna, I got to be careful. I can't mix the two up because I, I think they don't like each other. They might be, especially in soccer, they hate each other. Mm. I know that much. I, th- I think it's more like a Minnesota, Wisconsin hate. But with more guns? Yes. <laughs> in Brazil? <laughs> I was just saying, I think Wisconsin's got more guns That's per true. capita than Brazil <laughs> or true. Argentina does. I think they have six per every citizen. <laughs> Masu was blown away by this report and called in Gushinau's wife, Renee, for an interview that took place on March 21st, 1944. Everything she said confirmed Guido's account and brought several new pieces of information to the table. For instance, the meeting point was known by Gushinau in advance. In every other case, the police would discover, the physician would never again reveal the address in advance. Okay. In March 1942, two months after her husband left for Argentina, Renee was worried that she hadn't heard from him. She visited Pacho, who was the only one in the Underground Secret Railroad that could communicate with quote-unquote clients. Very convenient. Here's the thing. Why isn't she leaving, too? Well, let's uh, let's okay. find out quickly. All right, all right. Pacho assured her that her husband was doing well. After traveling through Marseille and Casablanca, he had reached Buenos Aires. Pacho showed her a postcard written in code with no obvious date, stamp, addressee, or signature. <laughs> it did appear to be written in her husband's handwriting, though. It said he had arrived safe and that Rene should come immediately. Okay. That spring, two more postcards would come supposedly from Gushinau, written on stationery from a Buenos Aires hotel where Pecho claimed that Rene's husband was living. According to these letters, once again written in code, his business was thriving and he needed his wife to join him now. How the hell did he get postcards from Argentina? D- Pecho? Yes. I, he is a crafty fucking I, asshole. I'm just like, how is he balancing all of these lies? Well, I don't know if it's a lie yet, but... I'm assuming it is. How is he balancing all of this? And they're all around the same time, too. Yeah. Like, how is he doing it? I don't know. In the last message, Gushinau demanded that his wife immediately depart, threatening to cut off ties with her unless she consented now. Pecho seconded the urgency of the request, advising her to... Sell all your belongings and carry as much money as possible. Okay, well, 
Probably that last sentence should be pretty uh, uh, convincing. <sighs> something, and, something's awry. And how how urgently that her mm. that her husband was saying that she needed to she needed to get with Petio now and get the hell out of town. Well, <laughs> Come obviously, with me. <laughs> obviously, Gushnow was killed by Marcel yeah, Petio. Uh, yeah, very obviously. And he was about to kill his wife as well. But thankfully, she never to. returned to him. Okay, thank God. Matthew's next appointment was with the head of the construction company that did the renovations at 21 Rue Le Sueur when Dr. Petiot bought the place in 1941. This company was called Labradere at Minard, <laughs> and it had made the house livable and also added some improvements that seemed very specific. Okay. One of the most peculiar ones was the construction of an inner wall in one of the buildings that created the triangular room. Then they surrounded the new space with a wall consisting of 8.6 inches of solid brick. A view hole was installed, a double door was inserted, and eight iron hooks were added. All of these renovations were made in October of 1941, two months before the dis disappearance of the first known victim, Joachim Gushinow. So he's the very first one that we, we think thing happened. Yep. Okay. I, I'm assuming... I wish Jordan was here. Uh, I would assume 8.6 inches of solid brick. Might He might even think that's a little weird. That's excessive. <laughs> yeah. That is, uh, that is some... Well, he, he definitely explains why. Mm. The foreman on site for that project was Gaston de Thev. Mm. And on March 23rd, 1944, he would accompany Commissioner Massu to Rulesur, where he would point out all the work his crew did in detail three years ago. As Dethav mentioned, Petro told them he was going to turn the property into a clinic and, and mental institution once World War II ended. But it wasn't called World War II at the time, of course. And that newly constructed triangular room would house an electric transformer. Mm. Petro wanted the walls reinforced to drown out the sounds of it, as well as protect the neighbors against the dangers of radiation. After all, according to Marcel... With electrotherapy... You can never be too careful. <laughs> I mean, that's true, to be fair. He also explained that the view hole in the wall was so he could monitor the machine from safety. As for the hooks, Dr. Petcho never met, never explained why he needed those. This is sound, sounding very familiar to H.H. Holmes. Oh, he would have contractors come in and build don't whack. You, don't you remember yeah, that? Yep. Yeah. He's like, why do you need all these wacky rooms? Right. And then it's like... He had an excuse for all of them all the time. <sighs> but and as it as it turned out, what he would do in the triangular room is hang people up by the hooks. Ooh. Sometimes like giving them stigmata, like through the hands and feet. Like the Mm-hmm. Okay. Other times he would uh leave them in there and they would feel around on the walls where there was a secret button that would push out a tiny syringe filled with cyanide to kill the people in there. So this motherfucker's like jigsaw. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yep. And okay. not to mention the triangular door or the triangular room had a false door at the end where that the the people could could try and like escape. Yes. But it was just a fake door. I've been, I've been trying to way you're talking about this. I'm trying to be like have I ever been in a triangular triangular room? I don't think I have. I I don't I don't think I have. Maybe like a shed? Like, I, I feel like I'd get creeped out immediately if yeah. it was just a triangle. It's supposed to be like, four walls, motherfucker. Yeah. 
Well, even then, it's like at an angle, and yeah. I don't know. Jesus, that's fucked. So, how he would put him up on the hooks? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then they had to escape, or like had to get off of that? Uh, it or would he be, just let him sit up there? Yeah, it was sometimes he would, and obviously the view hole was so he could watch them suffer. Yeah, clearly, clearly, yeah. But, yeah, he, he did it in different ways. Mostly so that he wouldn't be the one that killed them. He could just watch them die, like either starve to death or whatever. Okay, that is definitely basically Jigsaw. Yeah, he's disgusting. Right, he's a, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure H.H. H. Holmes had the little holes, too, where he could watch Def- them. Oh, yeah. yeah so. He had the, the creep holes that he could jerk off. Right. <laughs> now, Cody, let me ask you a question. Yes. Do you remember all the way back from episode one when we talked about those two patrolmen, T-Seer and Fillion? They were the men that allowed... Marcel Pichot back into his house because they mm. thought he was his brother. Okay, yep, yep, yep. Well, they kept denying that ever happened. <laughs> Even after the fire chief gave his testimony on March 16th, describing the man in detail. Okay, well, you know what? You don't want to get written up. Yeah, you don't. I yeah, mean, you don't want to get written up. And, and you don't want to be called a liar either. Mm-mm. Like a backwalker on all on all the patrolman stuff you said. I can only assume Marcel and uh, Maurice look alike. Yeah, they do actually. Okay, so yeah. we can blame them. On March eighteenth, nineteen forty-four, knowing that there were too many witnesses to continue the cover-up, the patrolman came clean. They explained their lack of judgment by the fact they had been shocked and overwhelmed by the rotting cadavers burning in the stove downstairs. Mm. For their negligence of duty, as well as their repeated lies, patrolman Tisir and Fion were fired and ordered to appear before the Germans at the courthouse. Both men fled, fearing severe reprisals. As it turns out, patrolman Tisir was in fact a member of a resistance group inside the police known as L'Anair de la Police. <laughs> <laughs> he escaped by jumping out of the window of the courthouse like oh, a fucking badass. I was going to say, damn. Well, I'm going to assume the Germans, would they have just killed him? I, I'm actually not sure what they mm. would have done, and the book did not say. But I, I would assume, assume, yeah, just... I mean, that's a high profile. You let right. the killer go back into his fucking horror home mm. to collect documents so mm. he couldn't be identified. Yeah, I feel like they probably would have just killed you. March 30th was the next big break in the case. A 39-year-old woman who lived on the third floor at 22 Rue Le Sueur had some information for the detectives. She remembers the previous summer, an old truck pulled up to Dr. Pichot's building and a couple of men loaded a bunch of suitcases into it. She remembers counting the suitcases, amazed by how many there were. By her count, there were 47. You know she's a nosy bitch if she sat and counted how many fucking suitcases there was. To be fair, it was mm. 1943 France. What the fuck else are you going to do? I mean, yeah, I suppose. They ain't got no TV to watch or no... You're going to listen to the, the Germans? switch? Yeah. yeah, I suppose. Luckily, there were markings on the truck that the woman remembered. The Manjad Company. Massu contacted them and found the driver that helped Marcel that day. His name was Maurice Lyon, another goddamn Maurice. I was going to say, is that a very popular name in oh, yeah. France? Oh, okay. yeah. So we'll just call this Maurice, we'll call him Lyon. Okay, I like that. Great last name, though. Fucking fantastic. Great. He verified that he had picked up 49 suitcases from Dr. <laughs> Pachot and delivered them to the train station to be taken away by rail to Auxerre. 
The shipment was signed for in Augsburg by one Albert Neuhausen, mm. who immediately became a key figure in the investigation. Mm. On March 30th, acting on this information, Masu and a team of detectives came to search Neuhausen's electronics store, and he was not there. His wife, Simone Andre, on the other hand, knew exactly about the suitcases and brought the police up to the attic, which was filled to the brim with suitcases stacked neatly in rows. Just piled up in there, just chilling in there. Just like a goddamn, I know you've never been to Vegas, but like a <clears throat> Vegas uh, baggage room. They Wait, why would they let you in a baggage room? In Vegas? Yeah. Well, one time I had to go back there because they couldn't find my bag. But, they let you in there. Well, they took me there. What if you were like Ocean's Eleven dudes? Oh, you well. You robbed I, the whole casino. What if you had a little Asian man with you? But would have did a bunch of trapeze shit to like rob him. I'm stuff. not exactly sure if the closet called the baggage room <laughs> is connected to the money room in any way. Well, here's the real question. How many dead bodies are in those suitcases sitting in there? Oh, well, that's the fucking question, though, isn't it? I would assume there's at least a couple. It's Vegas. Mm. Well, that place is a goddamn Disney town now, man. I don't know why, but when you say Newhausen, all I can think of is like this is the French version of like Quagmire from oh. Family Guy. <laughs> He's just like the giggity yeah. giggity. Yeah. I was trying to think of a cartoon neighbor that I can think of. I'm like, yeah. man, this guy sounds like fucking Quagmire. You know he's eating puss and eating ass over next door, and oh. he just happened to... Oh. I just happened to notice the oh. uh, 49 luggages uh, going in. I guess now that you say that, it makes me think of Newman. <laughs> oh, yeah. Newman. We've, uh, we've been watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, my God. That's mm. the best show. Mm. That's so the good. best show. So good. And I think we just talked about that on the podcast, right? Hell, yeah. Hell, yeah. There were, in fact, 49 pieces of luggage in Newhausen's attic. And police spent the rest of the afternoon lowering the heavy, heavy trunks with a rope through the attic window. As rain poured down, police cars brought what Masu called the most tragic cargo back to their offices. Mm. Okay, what's in these bad boys? The contents of the suitcases would prove remarkable. Inside, in <laughs> no apparent order, and this is going to be kind of long. Okay, Are you ready? let's hear it. 76 dresses, mm. 26 skirts. 42 blouses, 48 scarves, 52 nightgowns, 46 pairs of panties, 14 dressing gowns, 13 negligees, 77 pair of gloves, 35 belts, 25 handbags, 26 women's hats, 10 pairs of women's boots, 6 jackets, 5 fur coats, 3 mink stoles, and three and 31 handkerchiefs. <laughs> Just think about this. I mean, when you're reading this, I'm like, okay, this kind of sounds like your uh, 21st century lady kind of. Oh, yes, yes. I like excessive clothing. And um, then the minute you get into the hotel room, mm. it's like a bomb goes off. Mm. Like, it's ground zero of all this stuff in there. I, and, I, hey, I'm not going to complain. Mm. I love when chicks look nice. And mm. if that's what it takes for a chick to look nice, go for it. Well, I, I just learned about what fast fashion was a few weeks ago. Fast fashion? Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you after the show. It's, all right. You should definitely look into it. It's kind of uh, scary, to be honest. But All right. So he's got 311 handkerchiefs, and Jordan's dad only has one. Just the one booger-coated Think about that. I know. Think about that. Well, that's not all. On the male side of things, he found 115 men's shirts, 104 cuffs, 82 pairs of socks, 62 pairs of shoes, 
29 full suits, mm. 14 overcoats, four pairs of slippers, three pairs of swim trunks. Okay, I wonder if they're like the uh, Speedo ones. Oh, oh. Had to be, right? Yeah, What is? I forget what the Italians call, or the Australians <laughs> call those. Uh, Speedos? Yeah, they call them something. They have a <clears throat> special name for Speedos down there. I mean, okay, now on the male side of things, this just sounds like a post-grad NYU student, perhaps. Oh, but wouldn't that be, since they're so poor, like one sweatshirt? They're poor, but they need all of this stuff for interviews. Of course, stuff, so. for their uh, mm-hmm. after they just paid ninety thousand dollars to go to school. Now million. they have to intern for two years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there was also an assortment of eyeglasses, raincoats, bus tickets, nail files—you name it. In short, one thousand seven hundred and sixty items were recovered. Why would you hoard? Raincoats, bus tickets, and nail files. It's, it's so weird. I mean, obviously, I think uh, last episode you talked about him being a kleptomaniac, kind of. Exactly. So he's a collector. He just, just kind of takes everything he can get. These are the suitcases from, mm. fr- like, these are the su- the personal belongings from the supposed underground railroad he was running. So he has, like, literally the ultimate trophy collection right yes. now. Yes, yes. Okay. Including an attic to store all of his trophies in. Mm. Albert Newhausen was finally found one day later on March 31st, 1944. When questioned, he confirmed that he was only holding the suitcases for his friend Maurice Pechot, Marcel's (laughs) brother, Mm. who had done many favors for his family, including giving them a loan to buy their house. Newhausen claimed that he never looked through the suitcases, saying he had no curiosity whatsoever about their content. A simple look through Newhausen's property, however, uncovered a shitload of items that had clearly been removed from the suitcases. Newhausen. For instance, in the bedroom of their 16-year-old son Christian was an entire grown man's wardrobe, including two suits and an overcoat. Confronted with this evidence, Newhausen no longer denied having curiosity and admitted that he and his wife had gone through three or four of the suitcases that were unlocked. I mean, there's 49. Why not? Take a quick glance through him. Why not? Well, he also used one of the suitcases for a trip to Paris, reasoning, now that Dr. Pachot is in flight, I may as well take something. He'll never come back to reclaim it. To be fair, he probably wasn't going to look at any of this shit ever again anyway. No, no. He just, the comfort of him having it Mm. was all that he needed. Mm. Newhausen had other information for the police as well. About two or three months after the suitcases showed up on his doorstep, Maurice came over. Newhausen escorted him to the attic and then returned to his chores. He didn't know if Maurice had opened or rummaged through any of the suitcases or if he carried anything away. Another time, Maurice brought Marcel's wife, Georgette, to the attic. Again, he claimed he brought them up there and went back to his chores. Back at the office, Massu was examining the contents of the suitcases for clues to identify possible victims. His first instinct was to look at the labels of clothing, finding out where they were made, bought, laundered, or any other distinguishing features. This search was exasperating, to Mm. say the least. Mm -hmm. Who were these victims? How could he possibly identify them among the thousands who had fled occupied Paris, not to mention the 33,000 Jews that were rounded up? Right. Based on what was found so far in the suitcases, on April 12th, 1944, Massey drafted a list of probable victims of Dr. Pachot. There were now 22 The investigators continued to comb through evidence and chase down leads, but to no avail. Then, the investigation was a little bit interrupted by the Allied invasion of Normandy on June 6th, 
1944. That would do it. But this, let's shout out, that is insanely impressive. Can you imagine looking through all this shit, like, and trying to figure out who it belongs to? Oh, my Not lord. Not to mention trying to put together the fucking meat puzzle mm. of all the lime-covered body parts and shit. I I mean, we bitch about our jobs, but this sounds like a daunting task. Not to mention under occupation of a disgusting mm. fascist rule. Mm. And now a whole nother force is coming to try and sweep those guys away. <laughs> the Petcho story drew increasingly less attention that summer in French newspapers, obviously. Mm. The trail was cold. The Americans were fighting their way through France, pushing the Nazis back. And most police figured Petcho was already dead. August 19th, French resistance numbering about 15,000 started an uprising to retake Paris. They held their own against the brutal Nazis, who were tying Frenchmen to the turrets of their tanks as human shields. Three days later, the U.S. 2nd Armored and 4th ID entered the city. The commander of the German garrison at Paris surrendered to the French at Hotel Maurice that very afternoon. After 1,553 nights of occupation, Paris was once again the City of Light. Amidst all this confusion is where we will pick up in part four. So, you, so with the Germans out of the way, make it a lot easier to get this guy. That's the way it seems. Without them clouding things up or interrupting for strange reasons, there were so many divisions within the Gestapo, they couldn't even keep themselves straight. There were times where two different divisions of the Gestapo were investigating the same thing, <laughs> but with different goals in mind. So they were basically competing for the collar, but for different reasons and sabotaging each other along the way. That's what happens when your entire your entire government is a bureaucracy. Mm. You know, you're going to get redundancies and you're going to get wasteful fucking bullshit. Here's what I'm going to say, though. I didn't realize, I'll be honest, I didn't realize that the French had their own resistance that kind of went up and opposed them. Definitely. They they really? they did the they did the heavy work in uh in free, in liberating Paris, definitely. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I know, you know, as Americans, we kind of uh have dog on them. Well, no, I was going to say as Americans, I I feel like because what we're taught in history books and stuff like a lot of people fantasize about revolution and all yeah. of this stuff because that's kind of the roots of America. And it seems like the French have a lot of uh, the same patriotism. On. Mm. Yes, they've had the resistance here. I think uh, they had uh, the French Revolution. Couple of them. Yeah, World War One. They were uh, kicking ass. They uh, mean, uh, they supplied all of the bodies. Mm. They lost a whole generation of men due to that war. I mean, let's you know the French. Uh, what do they go? The French surrenders or whatever. It's kind of a meme that was going around, but uh, they're it, badass. It's simply there. because of this, because they had no men left to fight this invasion of a well-oiled, gigantic Nazi war machine. That's the only reason they have that reputation. Mm. Our own independence, America's own independence, is due completely to French backing, French guns. All that stuff, man. They Hell helped yeah. us kick the fucking British out. <laughs> the French are not surrender monkeys, okay? No. Well, it's weird that they did that, and then they uh, basically dominated Canada, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. They're still there. But the Queen of England is on their money. Mm, right. I don't think she does much outside of where's different. Hell, 
I'm assuming from your story here, after uh, they they sort of threw all the clothing here, they gave the queen all of them hats. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> they yeah they sent them over biggest, to the queen of biggest, England. The biggest hat collection in the world right now. But uh, but yeah, how how long is fifteen fifty three nights? Is that like one thousand five hundred and fifty three nights? Five years. Four five, years. Four years. Yep. Okay. So yeah, that's uh, that's quite a few. Little they were there a long years. time. Mm. Yeah, a long time. But uh, but great. Yeah, get them out of there. Let's Fuck yeah. Uh, let's find out um, about what's gonna happen to Marcel here. In part four, now that we're free of the Gestapo, my friend. Hmm. French police are going to be able to pick it up a little bit. They're going to do it. They're mm. going to nail him. Mm. Okay. He's going to go to trial, I believe. I mean, to me, it sounds like obviously he's been on the run. We have interviews from his wife in mm. part two trying to find him. Now we have his, what, brother mm-hmm. in this one. And in some custody. Of, and some of the other associates uh, who kind of know him. I would assume while the war is going on, it's very difficult for a uh, man wanted to kind of like move from country to country. Oh yeah. So, uh I I I don't know. I guess I don't know. Is there like battles going on everywhere and he can't really just you can't really just, you know, walk through them and be like I'm oh, I'm not just, involved here. I'm a conscientious <laughs> yeah. objector. I'm just, just watching. Here. Yep. Second of a Vice News shirt on trying yeah. to run oh, through there. Oh, perfect. Press badge. <laughs> That'll save you. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh thanks a lot for listening to part 3. We're, yeah, like I said, we're going to pick it up in part four. Whatever. If you enjoy this series so far, you can tell me all about how much you enjoy it at bumblebuttpodcast at gmail.com. What's that, Adam? Bumblebuttpodcast at gmail.com. As always, follow us on Twitter at bumblebuttpod, Facebook and Instagram at bumblebuttpodcast. Now it's time for the most important part of the show, at least if you ask Cody, the iTunes reviews. Um, we've been a little slow. I haven't gotten any. Slack unfortunately. again. That's fine with me. It, I've, I I honestly feel like a lot of people are le- leaving iTunes. I yeah. I didn't know Spotify it's, revolution. It is. It's, it's uh, even when you look at our numbers, you can see the percentage of Spotify users is overtaking the iTunes users. Has so, it has it passed yet? Not quite yet. Yeah. Actually, our highest is other. Other. I don't know what other means. Insane. Maybe it's an app using their app to listen. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's something like that. At that point, wouldn't it say Podbean? But who knows? I I don't know. It just says other. Don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, matter. If you are an iTunes user, leave the show five star review if you could. Uh, We'll read it. Yeah, preferably right. We'll read it on the air, right? Whatever that. Write your goddamn business in there. We'll talk about it. Fuck yeah. Uh, Spotify, you hit the follow button. Hit that follow button. Yeah, update it whenever we drop a new episode. That's all you got to do. It's awesome. Helps the show out. It's really awesome that you guys would do that for us. Hell yeah. Also, we have a Patreon, and that's Mm -hmm. patreon.com slash bumblebuttpodcast. All of our people have now received their cards. Is that true? Their postcards, the fifteen dollar and up. I I tell you what, we're going to talk about one individual who apparently the USPS does not like us that much. Oh, and I'll I'll tell all about it uh, on between the bumble. Okay, we'll do. All right, guys. Well, shit. Buy a shirt. Go to Patreon. Hell yeah. Sign up. Mm-hmm. That's all there is to it. If you want to buy a shirt, drop us an email or an Instagram, and we will get her shipped to you ASAFPD. <laughs> I don't know what that stands for, but we, yeah, we'll get you shirt right away. Definitely. All right, guys. That's going to do it for all of us here at Bumblebutt Podcast. I've been Adam. That's been Cody. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, everybody. 
and have a nice weekend, unless it's Tuesday. I, yeah, I was going to say, we, <laughs> he's the only one who's got at that. <laughs>